So, all right, folks, here it is. If you, uh, if you have been a Creeksider for any amount of time, you picked the right Sunday to attend. Let me just promise you that, okay? And if you are a guest with us today, you picked a doozy of a week to show up at a random church, okay? So, this morning, we get to talk about the topic of men and women in church ministry and what that looks like, okay? So some of you are like, huh, cool, you know? And others of you are like, oh boy, buckle up. We all took a deep intake of breath. Let's see how this goes, okay? Um, here, here's, here's how we arrive to, to be talking about that this Sunday. Um, this, is, uh, this has been, for, for two and a half years, um, the elder team, okay? So we're, we're like trying to shepherd and lead the congregation, and for two and a half years, we've been wrestling with the question of um, what does it look like for men and women to serve and use their gifts in our church family? What does that look like? Um, and so that discussion has not been easy. It's been actually... Um, it's been hard. It's been in depth. It's been long, um, and we've been wrestling with it. So, one one thing I one thing I know for sure, okay, is uh, we we've kind of wrestled and kind of starting two and a half years ago is wrestling with. Okay, we know on the one side there's people that have been concerned and frustrated in our church because we've had uh, we have not had women doing enough in the church, and so wanting to see um, women doing more in our church family, whatever. On the other hand, we have had people concerned, frustrated because we've been having women do too much in the church. So as you can imagine, right, there's no way to make everybody happy. There's no way to find out what everybody thinks. And then in with that is our deep conviction to say, what we want most is we want to do what God calls us to do. God, God, like God defines truth. He's the one that tells us what life is really like, what it's really about. And so when he says things in the Bible, we want to listen and hear what God is saying. And that needs to matter to us the most. So two and a half years ago, the elders, uh, we all embarked together on this. Hey, let's, let's challenge our assumptions. Um, let's think through, let's go back to the text of scripture. Let's see what we're really um, thinking. And if, are we in line with what God's calling us to here? So that's gone two and a half years. It's gone. We've had 13 different elders involved in that discussion over time, and, um, and finally, with, um, with our last elder team of nine, we arrived at a decision and a statement, and here we are. You showed up at the Sunday where we get to, like, roll this out. Um, honestly, I'm excited, because he here's the thing. Yeah, if you're visiting, it's like a weird Sunday to come. Honestly, though, it's pretty great because you get a chance to see how we process and how we do things. And one thing I love about this church family is we have never been afraid to ask hard questions and to talk about difficult things. Um, these are issues that we all have opinions about. So I know for a fact, every single one of you has an opinion about this. You have a, some of you have a deep-seated conviction about this. Um, and so there's a sense in which knowing that we disagree, and I promise you we do, knowing that we disagree— um, Let's just leave it to the side. Let's not talk about it, okay? And I love that we're part of a, a church family that says, you know what, it's hard, but let's talk about it, right? We can talk about hard things. We can dig in. We can acknowledge that we all love Jesus, that we, um, we care about what Scripture says. And so um, in that world, in that frame, we just want to say— we're going to tackle this. We're going to talk about it. We've, we've wrestled for a long time. A bunch of you have been involved in that as, as the elders. We've reached out to a bunch of you, and we've had a bunch of conversations to talk about this. And so here we're going to kind of um, roll this out. Now, I want to say from the beginning— this is not the most important thing about Creekside Church, okay? This is not. Um, uh, the, the Evangelical Free Church, that's uh, the denomination that we're part of, they have a statement, a motto that says, um, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, harmony, 
and in all things Jesus Christ. So that's their, their statement, okay? So the essentials there would be things like, um, man, Jesus died for us, right? He forgives us of our sins, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Those things are the essential things. Non-essential things, so we, we're going to have a unity on the essentials. The non-essential things are things like predestination. You know, how much does God determine beforehand and how many of the choices do we make ourselves? Those are non-essential doctrines. I would very firmly consider this issue of what specific roles do women hold in Creekside Church to be a non-essential doctrine. However, I will say this. I think it matters a ton. Um, and I also, it's one of these non-essential doctrines that you have to have a practical uh, practice with, if that makes sense. We, we can decide, we can disagree on um, predestination and God, what does God determine beforehand or whatever, but we don't have to set a policy based on that, right? But with women in ministry, we either have women preaching sermons or we don't, right? We either have women serving on the elder team or we don't, right? And so this is one where we kind of have to have a way to proceed, a way forward, even though there's a lot of room for grace and disagreement and all that kind of stuff. You guys want me to stop hedging and just tell you what we think? <laughs> So we're going we're gonna to go through this, and what, we, what we've done, so the, the elders, um, we've wrestled with this a bunch. We've come down with five statements that we want to make that we think um, this fits Creekside Church for what God's called us as we're shepherding this. So five statements we'll walk through. Um, a few of them aren't controversial, so there you go. And then a couple of them are. So number one, we're going we're to start here. Oh, and I think, all right, I got this. New clicker this morning, guys. We'll just see. <clears throat> Number one, men and women are unique and both carry the image of God. All right, everyone's like non-controversial non one. I think we're good there. Um, I want to start here, though. I think it's important. This is Genesis 1. This is God creating the world. And after he creates, you know, day and night and land and, and sea and all these kinds of things, God then turns to create human beings. And when he does that, he says this. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. So now this is basic, right? But this is just looking back to the very beginning. When God decided, I'm going to make human beings in the midst of the world, there is this emphasis on the fact that God made human beings in his image. So God is a certain way. God has a personality. God has, like, characteristics. And so when God wanted to create human beings in the midst of the earth, he said, I want to make these people to reflect my image. I want them to be like me. I want them to represent me. I want people to be able to look at human beings and see something that's true of me. And as we do that, I think there's been a tendency in Christian circles to be very patriarchal, kind of male-focused, but what we have to see is in the very beginning, when God created man in his image, he created man, in the, in the image of God, he created him, singular, male and female, he created them, plural. And so I think what's happening here is you're seeing this reminder, this, this thing that's embedded in there from the beginning, man, God, when he made human beings, male and female, both part of the image of God. So I think what that means is if you held up all the men in the church, we would see something about God. If we held up something, all the women in the church, we'd see something about the image of God. But I think if you have one group and not the other, you're not seeing the full image of God because together we hold God's image together. And I think that's really important. 1 Corinthians 11 is a passage we're going to get to later um, and, and look at in a little bit. But here, here's something really important. So yes, I mean, man was made first and Eve, like Eve comes out of Adam's rib. That's how the Genesis account describes it. But here, here's Paul later saying, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. There's just this reminder here, right, that like male, female, it's God's design, it's important, it's reflecting the image of who God is to the world that's around us, doing that together. And this verse is so important, this is Galatians 3, um, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all are, are one in Christ Jesus. So there is, at the time that Paul's writing, there's all these distinctions between kinds of people, Jews and Greeks, are, um, and if you're one or the other, right, it, it matters a lot. There's slave and there's free, and there makes this big difference, male and female, and he's saying, look, when it comes to Christ, there is this equality in the whole thing. There is this, this reality where, yes, Jew or Gentile doesn't matter, slave free doesn't matter, male or female, there's no such thing as a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. And so everything that we do, every, all the, when we talk about men and women in the church, we have to have this fundamental equality in mind as we walk through because this is the way that God designed it. Now, saying all that, the, the statement was men and women are unique, both, both reflect the image of God. We also want to say it's not like men and women then are, the exactly, are exactly the same, right? I mean, every kindergartner knows there's physical differences between men and women, right? So we're not trying to say men and women, like there's no difference, they're, they're, they're exactly the same. No, men and women are different, okay? Physical differences. I think there's psychological and social differences between men and women. I think sometimes we've um, let culture drive a little bit what we see as the difference between men and women. I mean, like boys like blue, girls like pink, like everybody knows this, right? But if you went back maybe like 30, 40, 50 years, um, pink was the boy color and blue was the girl color. And it's just like, you know, man, what did the people back then know? They had those reversed, right? But it just shows there's cultural elements involved in like, you know, do, do girls play sports or not? You know, like we've come a long ways as a culture, I think, in dismantling some cultural stereotypes about what it means to be male and female. But we are saying, Man, male and female are different, and that's by God's design, that's to be celebrated, right? God created the differences, he celebrates them, but together, like we need them together. We need both. And so if we see just men, if we see just women, we're missing something about the image of God. And so as we look at this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, with each of these statements, with each of these number five things, these five things, um, we've got a little statement that the elders we kind of worked on together, and so um, I'm going to read this statement here. So we affirm that in God's eyes, men and women are completely equal in value and worth. We also affirm that if we want an accurate picture of God at Creekside, we need both men and women to be fully functioning members of our church. I think that's super important. All right, number two, into further non-controversial territory. Um, both men and women are empowered by the Spirit for ministry. Now again, not controversial, but so, so, so important, okay? Okay. Um, we talk about, like, theology 101 looks like this, okay? Um, we are human beings. We struggle. We fall. We never live up to the standard that we even set for ourselves, let alone the standard that God has for us. And so as human beings, we're constantly running against that. Jesus comes, and he offers himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, right? So Jesus comes, and he comes in love. He comes inviting. He comes to welcome us and make this way back to God. And in doing that, he makes us alive from the inside out. In God's spirit, he sends to us to, to come and to make us alive from the inside out, to bring this growth and this life in our, in our lives. But also it says the spirit of God empowers us. He gives us gifts, and he empowers us, gives us this supernatural ability to minister in love and bless and serve the people around us. 
Okay, so theology 101 is when you come and you recognize your need for Jesus and you accept what he's done on your behalf, there is this spiritual empowerment that comes, okay? And if we ask the question of, is that spiritual empowerment available to men or to women, right? The answer is yes, right? If you're human, if you accept Christ's gift, there is this um, empowerment from the Spirit of God for men and for women. Now, that it probably is not um, that dramatic, but I think it's important to recognize and see it. So let's just ask the question, biblical examples, do we see in the Bible this, this empowerment and this gifting? So the male examples tend to be easier for us to come up with in the Bible. Okay, you have people like Moses, right? You have people like Elijah. You have people like David. You have people like Paul. And so we can look at males um, that God has used powerfully through his spirit to just do a certain work in the midst of the world, right? What about on the female side? We're less familiar with these examples, but they are there in Scripture, and I think it's important. You have, you have Miriam, okay? So when, when Moses leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt, there's Aaron, his brother, and there's Miriam, his sister, and they're all three working together to lead uh, God's people into what God is calling them to. And, um, and we don't focus on Miriam, but she's there. We see her prophesying. We see her leading. And in Micah, the book of Micah 6.4, it talks about how, um, looking back, it talks about how God used Moses and Aaron and Miriam to lead his people out. So there is this key role for a woman at this point in, in uh, Israel's history. Deborah was a judge. So in Judges chapter 4 and 5, God raised up Deborah as a woman to lead the entire nation of Israel and to free them from the oppression that they were under. And it's this beautiful picture of God empowering a woman to do these things. Um, 2 Kings 22 is this really interesting example where um, the law of God, God's people had lost his law, and it was like they were just functioning, and they were doing this thing, and they lost the law of God, and they're cleaning out the temple, and they find, oh, here's the books of the law, and the king, like, tears his robes, and he's like, oh my gosh, we're reading this law, and we're not living according to this. What do we do? We need someone to help us understand it. And so at the time, Isaiah is prophesying, Jeremiah is prophesying, but what they do is they go and they find Huldah, who is a prophetess. She is prophesying, and they find Huldah, and she comes and explains the law of God to get God's people back on track with what he's calling them to do. So again, there's these examples of God is working in his spirit through these different women. You go into the New Testament and we see Priscilla in the, New, in the book of Acts. She and her husband Aquila are um, teaching their ministry partners to Paul. Um, you have Philip's daughters in Acts 21 that, uh, you know, that's the only name we get for them, but there's this man, Philip, and his daughters, they prophesy. And so they're speaking on God's behalf. So we have all these examples of women in scripture. We're not as familiar with them, but we can see clearly, okay, God is using his spirit to raise up men and women to lead his people and to do these different things. Now, the details of it are like fuzzy in different cases. We're not as familiar with them, um, but I think it's important that we recognize these examples that exist because we're about to go through some hard verses in scripture, okay? So, so you guys that know where this is going, you know where this is going. There's these passages that say um, things that will restrict um, what women do in ministry. And, um, and so it's important for us to take those passages seriously, but we have to read them always against the backdrop of what did God do through women in the Bible? And I think sometimes we have a tendency to be a little bit more biblical than the Bible, if that makes sense. You know, we stand a little too firmly on some of these things, and if you can zoom back and see, okay, well, yeah, but we have to account for Deborah, right? We have to account for Philip's daughters. We have to account for Hulda. These things happened, and God used them, and God's working in that, right? So um, let's make sure that as we read the restrictive passages, that we also see um, the things that God did. Now, um, I want to—this I is not Paul talking about women and men. This is him talking about his 
church body. Okay, this is in 1 Corinthians 12. And so he's talking about how we all are joined together in Christ and we become like a physical body where we're all attached to one thing that's functioning. So if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less part of the body. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is so, so important, okay? And I think what happens sometimes is we, um, we get afraid of doing a certain thing. So, so the promise is, man, the Spirit of God is in us, and he's working, and he wants to do important, big things through each of us, right? And so as I look out, I see this is my church family here. I love you guys. And I think of the, those that are following along on the live stream. I think of those that were here first service. I think of those that are on vacation all the time, right? And we are a family, right? And we're just, we're just connected to each other. And Paul is saying, here that it doesn't matter which part of the body you look at. There's no part of that body that should say, oh, my gifts, my empowerment, that doesn't really matter very much, right? And he also says that it is so wrong of us to look at any other member of this church body and say, you know what? We don't need you. You know what? We don't really need you. Like that is, that is all wrong because the spirit of God has made us alive and he has empowered us. And if we are going to do what God wants us to do in this region, it's going to be because every single one of us acknowledges that the spirit of God is working and we say, okay, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm here. Use me to do it. And he does. And I'm just saying these gifts, they're for males and they're for females. I want to illustrate this with, um, um, I heard, so Samantha Beach Kylie is, uh, she, she gave this like retelling of the parable of the talents that I thought was just so helpful in thinking this through a little bit. So the parable of the talents, if you're not familiar, is from Matthew 25. Jesus tells the story of a master that's, you know, on his estate and he's got his servants and he's going away for a long journey. And before he goes, he gives talents to his people. Talents was like a unit of money at the time. So he's giving money. He's giving these talents to his servants. So to one, he gives five, to one, he gives two, to one, he gives one, and he leaves and doesn't really tell them what he wants them to do with it, right? So he comes back much later. And what does he find out? The servants, the one that had the five talents, he invested that money. He made more money on that money. And when the master comes back, he's like, here it is. I've made more money. It's doubled. And he's like, great job. You, you did amazing, right? The one with the two talents, he did the same thing, invested it, whatever, didn't make as much, but doubled his money and gives it to the Lord, to the master coming back and just says, I mean, he tells him, hey, great job. You did really good. But then there's the, the servant with the one talent and the servant with the one talent is motivated by fear. And he says, as the master comes back, he says, look, I was afraid of you. Like, I, I know that you're a hard man. I know that you're exacting. And I was afraid. So what I did is I took that talent and I buried it in the ground. Here it is. No harm done. Nothing's lost. Here's your talent back. You know, um, we're good. And the master is not happy with that, right? Because he gave the talent to this person not to be, oh, would you please store this somewhere safe? Would you please make sure that nothing goes wrong with this? He's saying, I gave it to you to be used. I gave it to you to flourish. I gave it to you to invest. And we think of us like as a church family, right? When we think of us, it's like the spirit of God is empowering us to do these powerful things through us. And so what does he want us to do with those things? Does he want us to live in fear that we might misuse the gifts that we have? Does he want us to live in doubt of like, maybe my gifts aren't that valuable. Maybe I'm kind of afraid of what God's going to do. Maybe I'm afraid I'm going to step over a line or break a rule, or I'm afraid of what other people say. And, and, and when I hear this retelling of it, what, what, what is brought out explicitly for me and what comes to my mind is I think that very often in the church, 
because we've been afraid of what God's going to do or because we're afraid of what people are going to think, we have taken the gifts that God's entrusted in women and we've made them feel like they're not as important as the gifts that God gives to men. And I think that that's wrong. I think that that's wrong. If the God, if Spirit of God has given gifts to his sons and to his daughters, then we need to see both using those gifts and we should not be afraid. Hey, I agree with that. And so, and, I, and, and listen, I'm not even in controversial territory yet, okay? Um, <laughs> um, I think we all agree. The Spirit of God is working, and he made men and women on purpose, right? And he made his church not to be a boys' club or a women's club, right? It's all of us together. And so we need to do better always at just looking at the people around us and just saying, hey, you've got gifts. And there's a number of factors why your own psychology or your upbringing, your culture, or, or how we function here as a church is limiting that. And we just want to say, man, let's boost that. Let's, let's, let's find the gifts of everybody. Let's lift those up and let's see how God is going to work through that. Okay. Now, so far, so good, I think. Now we get into a little trickier territory. Actually, let me, let me read this little affirmation here. We affirm that we need both men and women to be actively using their gifts inside and outside of Creekside Church. We believe that God's design for the church is seen when a variety of gifts are used by every member of the church body. So I think this is vital. Okay, now, number three. Here's where we're going to start to disagree, I think, but it's going to be fine. God has designed and equipped both men and women to proclaim his word. Okay, so here's, breathe, we're going to be fine. Um, We've already seen this. We looked at the different biblical examples, right? So we've seen um, some of them are more leadership focused, right? But we've seen, um, we've seen like Philip's daughters who are prophesying, they're speaking God's word on his behalf, right? We see it with Hulda who's explaining the word of God for people. Um, we see it with Priscilla who's teaching. And so we have these biblical examples of women speaking on God's behalf. But there are these passages that are t- tough in the New Testament that s- would speak to, that would limit what women are doing. And so um, now, so let me just pause right here for a second. I'm about to disappoint you all like massively, okay? There's a bunch of these passages. We're going to look at, I think, four of them. Um, and I am not going to be able to explain them all in detail, okay? Each one of these would, could use its own sermon series and like its own in-depth thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you the fruit of Um, us as an elder team in conjunction with some of the staff and everything else wrestling with this for two and a half years. I'm going to kind of share our conclusion, our take with it. Um, But what I want all of you to do is to wrestle with these things. So this afternoon, I'm going to send out an email to all of you, and it's going to have two things. One is a three-page document. That's basically everything that I'm laying out in the sermon here so that you can like process it, pray through it, wrestle with it. There's also a 37-page document, okay, that it goes through all of the detailed wrestling on either side of each of these key passages. So does that make sense? I'm not going to be able to wrestle with the text and all these arguments in this amount of time, okay? You guys don't have time for it, and um, our attention spans are just not like that. I'm going to start, and then I'm going to send you that document. It's a 37-page, single-spaced, mind you, okay? So it's going, to be, it's going to be like quite a thing to work through. But I encourage you, some of you are like, no, nah, I'm good. And others of you are just nerds like me, and you just cannot wait to dive into that thing. And, um, and it's just meant to walk you through. Okay, here's the argument, because there's work to be done here, okay? Sometimes we have firm opinions that are sort of uh, unmerited. You know, we haven't earned the opinions that we have, but we're still quick to share them. I'd love for us to kind of earn our opinions on this. I'd love for us to work and wrestle with our convictions. And if you come out exactly with the statement that the elders are are at, that's great. If not, that's great too. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But now let's march through some of these um, trickier passages, okay? 
So the first one is back to um, first, first Corinthians 11. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading just to kind of get it out here. So I'm going to read first um, Corinthians 11 verse three, and I'll keep on going here. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For a, uh, if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, and let's keep going here. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And anyone that was like tracking with Paul, right there you're like, okay, Paul, what in the world, all right? Because of the angels, guys. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman um, is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as, man, as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, let's breathe. All right, there is so much in here. You can see what I'm saying about like the need for like these multiple sermon series on these. There is so much in here. And so here's some key interpretive questions, okay? When Paul talks about a covering, what does he mean? Is he talking about a woman's hair? It seems like that at times. Or is he talking about women should wear hats? Like, I don't know. There's a cultural thing happening here that like we don't know and every scholar in the universe disagrees on, okay? Is he talking about men and women or is he talking about husbands and wives? You can see in the passage we read, it goes back and forth between men and women and between husbands and wives, but the Greek words that are used throughout are the exact same and they can mean either depending on the context. So we don't know. Is this marital or is this like church functioning, right? Um, and then finally, there's the concept of headship that's brought in. Um, Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ. Um, so what exactly is meant by head? He also refers to their literal head sometimes. So there's a whole lot of things that are, uh, that are great, that are amazing, that are full of like um, fuel for our souls, but also require a decent bit of interpretation, okay? So a lot of opportunity for us to disagree on this. Thankfully for us, we're going to zoom back out from that a little bit. And our, like, as we've wrestled with this as an elder team, what we're saying is we, we actually don't know all the details of this. We disagree, I guess, on all the details of the best way to read this. But when we zoom out, what do we see Paul saying? Paul's saying, when the women pray and prophesy as you gather together as a church, make sure that they're doing it like in a way that acknowledges like these theological truths. Does that make sense? So there's like this headship thing that, that man, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman, and, and God is the head of Christ. There's this headship thing that Paul's saying, when you gather and when women are praying and prophesying in your gatherings, make sure that, that through the, the cultural thing of what they're wearing on their heads or what they're doing with their hair, that it reflects this kind of headship thing. And so what I, what I want us to step back and see is what is Paul expecting to happen? When you walk into Corinth, if you were able to walk in there and see what's happening there, you'd see Paul trying to get some kind of symbolic thing moving there. But what you would see and hear is women praying and prophesying in the church gathering. So you would hear male voices like you're hearing now, and you would hear female voices. 
Now, what is, what, like praying, we know what that is. What does prophesying mean? Sometimes it means in the Bible, speaking, like talking about the future and telling what's coming next. But always it means, and most often it looks like um, people simply speaking on behalf of God. Thus says the Lord, like is the, the formula. And so we're talking about women um, speaking to God's people on his behalf, speaking his word to people. And so what we're saying is, I mean, we're seeing that in play there, and we're seeing some examples of women having done that in Scripture. Now, before we move on from that passage, I want to look at the very next verse. This is in verse 16, and it says this. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God, okay? So those of you that are like, you know, I think I'd like to be contentious right now. No, drop it, okay? <laughs> Paul saw it coming. He knew where you were going with that. And I think the call is to say, hey, let's, let's, let's make sure that we are um, moving in grace and truth, okay? Now, there's another one, a little, few chapters later, okay? And this one is, is even tougher, okay? 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, now that's, that's rough, okay? Let's just be honest, that's rough. Um, but I, but I, think, um, I think what Paul's, so again, we kind of come back to what is happening? What's the situation in the dress? It's, again, very hard to interpret. It's, there's a lot of different opinions about it. Um, what, what I see happening here is 1 Corinthians 14 is all about um, there are people speaking in tongues and there's people that are prophesying. And Paul's trying to lay out an orderly way that this speaking in tongues happens and interpretation and these prophecies, an orderly way that it happens. And right before this, he's called on, hey, when a prophet has something to say, let one speak and then let the others kind of weigh what's been said. Don't all just do it at once. And now he turns to the women, and it seems like there's something happening with the women in Corinth where, um, where maybe they're asking questions. Like, it just doesn't seem to be about um, preaching sermons. It seems to be about questions that they have. And he's saying, look, if they have a question, let them ask at home. Back then, we know men and women would sit on different sides of the um, space that they would gather in. And so maybe there's like a, you know... Jim, Jim, what's he saying about whatever? You know, I don't know. I don't know. But that's how I picture it in my head is, uh, is just like there's this disruption element. And Paul's trying to say, hey, get back to it. So what I know, I, I don't know for sure all of what's going on here. But what I do know is we see in 1 Corinthians 11, there's women that are, are speaking on God's behalf, praying and prophesying out loud in the gathering together, right? That's happening. So then if you go a few chapters later and Paul's like, oh, and make sure that no woman ever says a word in a church building, I don't think that's what's happening. So we have to wrestle with it and see, but I think this is more about a, um, an order thing or whatever. So again, as the elders have wrestled with this, we're kind of, we're saying, um, we're kind of seeing those two things fit together. Okay, now, last one I want to look at in this vein. It's First Timothy 2. And this is the big one. This one's really important. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, again, a lot there, right? A lot there. And there's so much that needs interpretation, so much there that needs to be impacted. You've got to consider the culture of the day. You've got to consider um, even the book of Genesis and how all that unrolls. Um, but there's, and, and there's, of course, so many opportunities to disagree here. Um, what we're seeing here as the elders, we've wrestled with this and everything else. Um, we want to, so again, we want to take every word of scripture very seriously. Okay. What we're seeing here, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. There's one very common view, which says, um, Paul's describing a certain type of teaching. Okay. Teaching or having authority over a man. It's kind of this like authoritative 
teaching role, okay? And that, that would be the kind of teaching that maybe sets the doctrine for a church that says like, here's, here's what we as Creekside believe, okay? And what we're saying, we're looking at this and we're saying this seems to be an elder function. Like he seems to be describing something that elders do here in, in preaching, teaching and having authority over men. And if you look in the next verses, it jumps right into chapter three from here. And what you begin to see then is you see him discussing eldership. So this is in the context of eldership. And so um, what we're seeing is that type of teaching that he's prohibiting here seems to be more of like an elder type of a thing. And so bottom line now, let's step back and zoom out, taking all that stuff together. Um, what we're trying to say is I think we, we, we are agreeing that we need to see men and women speaking in church in various ways. So here's the statement. We affirm that while men serve as the primary teachers of the church, we will follow the example of scripture by occasionally having women pray and preach under the oversight of the elders when the church gathers. So deep breath, that's different for Creekside, okay? We haven't done that yet. We've done like little, little pieces, little bits, um, but we're saying this is a change that we're wanting to make as we dig in and we look at scripture. Now, I want to be clear. There's, we, we, we haven't thought yet. We haven't prayed through yet of who or when or what exactly will this look like. Um, we wanted to ground this in teaching of scripture rather than thinking, okay, you know what we got to do is this specific person. So we're going to stop. We're going to pray. This is where we look to see like what God is doing. And then we're going to move forward from there. Um, but that's the shift. Okay. You guys are fine. Don't worry. You guys are fine. Um, let's jump into number four. Hey, thank you. Uh, number four, eldership is reserved for biblically qualified men. Now, this picks up exactly where the other one left off, okay? So we just saw 1 Timothy 2, 12, um, where he's saying, I don't want to teach or have authority over men. We're seeing that as like an elder function, okay? And so we're saying it seems like in the church, there is this one role called eldership that Paul seems to be saying, I want men to be in this role and not women. So some of you were upset about the last one. Others of you can be upset about this one, and it's fine. Um, first Peter five, this describes what an elder is. So to the elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is what elders are called to do. And so when we're looking at, um, first Timothy two, when we see Paul is limiting something, we're saying it seems to be that eldership role. Now I want to say clearly, we actually have, um, we have a lot of female ministry leaders in our church. We have female, um, uh, small group leaders, gospel community leaders. So it's not to say we don't, man, we don't want to hear the opinion of women in anything. No, it's not that at all. It's saying when, when God speaks and he says something in scripture, we want to take it really seriously. And it seems like there's something around this, this um, role of elder that Paul is saying, I want guys for this. Um, and look, um, it doesn't always hit our cultural sensibilities exactly right to stand on things like that. Um, but here's what I believe. I believe if God if God wants to tell us something about how he's designed things, that matters more than what I think, right? It matters more than what our culture says. And so we want to step into this in so much grace and everything else, but we also want to stand firm where scripture stands firm. So um, taking everything we've said so far, we want to celebrate and elevate the gifts and the value of women. I think we have work to do in elevating that. We, we as a church, we're going to do that prayerfully. We're going to do it with enthusiasm. You're going to start noticing um, women preaching from time to time, but we also want to be careful when we interpret scripture. Now, last point. Oh no, I need to read the affirmation. We affirm that our elders will be men who meet the biblical requirements and in humility and self-sacrificial love seek to serve and care for all the men and women in our church family. We also affirm that apart from the role of elder, the Bible encourages and assumes that women will be involved in all other aspects of ministry within the church. 
Okay, now, number five is actually my favorite point here. Um, Number five, there is room for disagreement on these matters within our church family, okay? So I kind of started there with our our evangelical free church, essentials, unity, non-essentials, harmony, and I just wanted to stand here and say, there is so much room for disagreement on this. Now, here's the thing. So I mentioned two and a half years and 13 different elders, and we all wrestled with this. When we started that process, if you had every one of those elders write out their statement of exactly how they interpreted each passage and how that plays out in the church, we would have been in 13 different places, right? And if we did it again at the end, we would still be in 13 different places, okay? We grew and we changed and we wrestled with this, but this statement that we're making is not the view of any one particular elder. We kind of all have issue and heartburn in different areas of this, but we're saying together, this is what we believe is best for Creekside Church. We're coming together to say, yeah, we have individual disagreements with different aspects of this. It's gonna be hard for us in different ways, but this is what's best for Creekside Church as we wrestle and we try to listen and hear and learn and give grace to each other. Um, And so if that's true for the elder, team, and that's true for our staff team as well, Um, if it's true on those fronts, it's definitely true for all of us, okay? There's room for us to be here and to disagree. Now, it'll be hard for some of you to either have women doing this or to not have women doing that. That's going to be hard for us at times, but here's what I know about a church family. A church family is not a group of people that all agree on everything together. We're just not. Like, we, there's so many things that we disagree about. And so why, what makes us a church family? What makes us a church family is Jesus and what he offers to us and what he calls us to. And, and I think we can stand here and have the same, like, love and passion for scripture and saying, I want to do everything that God says to me in the Bible. Like, we can all stand there and say that. Now, we will have different interpretations of it, but we can unite on the fact that we want to love and serve Jesus, that our lives have been changed by him, that we want to reach and share that love to the people that are around us. And so I think this idea of there's room for disagreement, I think this is actually the more vital point. Though I, I mean, mean, what we do in elevating women, how we treat each other, men and women in the church, that it all matters so much. And I understand how there's hurts and pains on on a bunch of different sides of this. Um, But this idea of we can be part of a united family and still disagree, this is actually a cultural element that I think is essential for our church. I think this is a vital thing um, that I want to see at Creekside. So, and let let me just give like a few key scriptural things here. We already looked at this in 1 Corinthians 11. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's not be contentious about this. It does not need to be a thing that we fight about all the time. Um, 1 Timothy 6, this is the same uh, book where a few pages earlier he had said, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority, but then he turns and he warns them against people who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. So we cannot be, we cannot let ourselves be that group of people that, man, we disagree about something, so what do we do? We are slanderous and we're, we're unhospitable about it and we're uncharitable in how we deal with it. We just can't be those people. I think it's vital that we wrestle through passages and through concepts like this. That's why we're sending you like the three-pager and the 37-pager. It's so vital that we wrestle with it. I want to see all of us like on our own in prayer before God, like, Lord, help me to understand this. I want to dig in. And I also want us to be the kind of church that has discussion and dialogue about this. I want us to be a fearless church that does not, is not afraid to talk to each other about this. But if that's going to work, if we're going to have these conversations and not just fall apart completely, we have to be motivated by love and grace. And we have to give each other some grace and understanding. Because I, I can tell you, there's a tendency to view this like, oh man, we've got some real people in this church that don't care about the Bible at all. that just want to do whatever culture says. And I'm just telling you, like, I don't think that's true. 
I don't think that's what's happening here. On the exact other side, you have, you have the, the temptation to say, man, there's some people in this church that just hate women and they're all about male power and authority. And I'm saying, I don't think that's true either. I think what we're saying is let's give each other some grace and understand there's room for disagreement. Let's take that document and wrestle with it. And then, hey, I'm very available and I would love to, I like, I actually nerdily love talking about this stuff. Come talk to me about it. The elders are available. They'd love to talk you through this. Um, we try to do as much upfront work as we can so that we're kind of ready for how we're processing this kind of thing. But man, the key is maintaining this unity and love and becoming this people that can disagree, but do it in so much grace. Romans 14, Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Each one of you should be fully convinced in his own mind. And that's what I would love to see, is every one of us wrestles because this matters. And each of us comes to a conviction and a point of saying, this is how I understand it, but also we're able to look at our brothers and sisters and say, yeah, you stand or fall before the Lord. You wrestle with it. I'll, I'll discuss, I'll debate, we can talk about it. Um, but ultimately, I'm not the judge of any of you guys here. You're not the judge of each other, right? We're here to just come and stand before the Lord. And I think, you know, the church is a family. We say that a lot. The church is a family. I'm not the one that made up the family illustration. Like, it's not just an evangelical thing. The family, the God describes his church as a family, a household of God. And so how does a family work? Like if my daughters are disagreeing with us about something, um, right now they're pretty young. So it, it like the disagreements look like my daughters think we should have like ice cream dessert every single night, you know, and we're like, no, not doing it. When they get older, those disagreements are going to get more serious, right? But how do we handle them? Do we say, oh, you disagree with us on this? You can get out of here, right? You go. No, we're a family, right? There's going to be all kinds of things we disagree about, but we love each other and we're there to share a table and to share our lives together and to support and love each other even when we disagree on serious things. I think the church should be the exact same thing. We can disagree and we can do it in love and we can do it still with an eye toward the mission that God is calling us to. So um, let me end with this affirmation. We affirm that we should have healthy, passionate, scripture-searching conversations about questions like this. We also affirm that we should be very careful to heed Paul's instruction. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Finally, we affirm that we need to carefully heed the commandment that Jesus said was the second most important, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there you go, Creekside. We did it. And uh, it's a lot to unpack. I'm sure you all feel some type of way about it. And, uh, and we just get to process it from there. And I, again, like I said, I, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm glad to be a part of a church that we are not afraid to wrestle with this hard stuff, okay? It's going to hit you in different ways. We're here to process it with you. Um, and man, I'm just so excited to dive into that work of just empowerment and seeing the Spirit come alive in, in each of us in different ways. Um, there is no better way for us to conclude our service than um, with taking communion together. So we have the communion elements up here. And, and honestly, this is like a very old practice. So our, our typical Sunday morning, right, we're digging through passages. And this summer, we've been looking at the upper room, Jesus with his disciples, right before he gave himself, uh, sacrificed himself for them. Jesus standing there with them and gathering together and saying, I want you to take this meal together, to celebrate, to eat the bread and drink the cup and remember that just like this bread is like, just like I'm laying my life down and my body's being broken, this bread is a reminder that my body is being broken and offered for you because I love you. And the same way they take in the cup and they're drinking and he's saying, this is the center of it all is that I'm shedding my blood. And this is the way that you can remember that I shed my blood because I love you. And so Jesus did that with his disciples. And then for 2000 years, 
the church has been gathering. And if you can even imagine all the disagreements the church has had over 2,000 years, it's just insane. Like you do a bunch of classes on it in seminary, and you're like, what even holds us all together? So much that we disagree on. But 2,000 years, the church has been coming back to the table and saying, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus loved us enough to break his body for us, which is the bread, to spill his blood for us, which is the cup, and to just remember those things and just to come to him and say, okay, yes, Lord, that's right. This is the thing that matters most. This is the thing that I'm giving my life to. You are the one that I am love and that I'm here for. And so we're going to take communion together. Um, so what we'll do is we have up here in the front, we have the little, um, the little cups, um, and it's the little disposable kind. So there's a little cup of juice. In the lid, there's a little wafer um, that we can grab, and there's some gluten-free uh, bread in the middle there too. And so um, what we'll do is just for a moment, we're going to um, come on up front, grab what you need for you and your family, head on back to your seat, and, uh, and then together we're going to take communion and just remember what Jesus did for each of us. So let's go ahead and do that right now.